Father, this evening we just thank you for the gift of life, for the strength, the provision, the protection you brought us here today, Lord. And I pray, Father, now as we meditate upon your word, you will give us hearing ears, a mind that understands, heart that believes, and the will to obey. For your word says, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. Help us to be willing and to be obedient, even today, for what we hear from you, Lord. Speak to us, search our hearts, minister unto us, Spirit of God. Help us to put aside everything that concerns us, troubles us. And keep our heart and mind stayed on your word alone, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So we are here, young and old, young, old, middle-aged, whatever our age or whichever category we consider ourselves, whether you are here by intent, by habit or accident, you know, when we come to the ministry of the Word of God, if we listen, if we listen, God often does the rest. You see, when the... When Paul was being led by the Spirit and he wanted to go to a particular place, he saw a vision of a man who told him to go to Macedonia. We don't see visions like that today when people talk about visions and dreams. It's about snakes and leopards and pythons and elephants. You know, they don't see visions like Paul and Peter and also, you know. Uh, he told him to go to Macedonia and he goes to Macedonia and he ends up in the city of Philippi. And, uh, Philippi, if you know, in Macedonia, Macedonia, from Alexander the Great, came from. Alexander the Great, in secular terms, okay? Philippi, the city named after Alexander's father, who was King Philip. But one greater than Philip and Alexander was in that city, and they didn't know. Wherever Paul went, he looked for a place to preach. But if he didn't find a place to preach, he always found people who would listen. So in Philippi, you will see, he went to the riverside. And he saw some women there and he started preaching to them. And one among the women, scripture said, was listening to what Paul was saying. That's not the message, okay? That's not the message. The message will be something else. But one lady by the riverside called Lydia was listening to what Paul was speaking. And scripture says, God opened her heart. Which will lead to her salvation, to her baptism, and she will open her house, which will become the first church in Philippi. So if you listen... God will open your heart. And if God opens your heart, He will open your home. And that's how the kingdom of God expands. It grows. Okay, so you never know what happens if you listen. So even tonight, listen. Listen, you never know. <coughs> and also when you listen, if you were here the past two Wednesdays, if you listen, remember all the messages are up on the website. But in a continuation, in a different tangent of the last two Wednesdays, we were looking at Amalek. Every time we come on a Wednesday, it's not like the Sunday messages, which are more general because of the crowd. But when you come on a Wednesday, it's always pre- be prepared to go up a notch higher. So when we come to the house of God and when the Lord speaks to us, 
Remember, constantly, all of us, young or old, it doesn't matter how young we are in the Lord, how old we are in the Lord, we are always working on two things, primarily. First, we look at First Thessalonians chapter 5, that the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, completely. And I pray God, your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved, blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that our whole spirit, soul and body is presented blameless on the day of Jesus appearing, which could be today or 10 years from now, 50 years from now. We do not know. But when he comes, we should be preserved. Our complete soul, spirit, soul, and body blameless before God. This is talking about our personal victory in our walk. Our personal spiritual victory each day. That we walk in our personal spiritual victory. That is important in our walk with God. Our victory. The second thing scripture talks about is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 20 to 21. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also wood and of earth. Some to honor, some to dishonor. So if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. The second is not our personal victory. The second is our personal usefulness in the hand of God. Everybody is not useful in the same manner in the hands of God. So scripture talks about our personal victory day by day and our personal usefulness in the hands of God. And both are connected. The more we are victorious in our walk with God personally with a walk with God and surrender ourselves into the hands of God in cleansing we also become more and more useful in the hands of God so this is our constant battle our battle to maintain our victory okay we are looking at battle today remember Amalek is connected with our battle in our constant battle to maintain our victory we have to remember, when we hear about battle and fight and war, we have to remember in Ephesians 6.12, Scripture says, we wrestle, we fight not, we battle not against flesh and blood. Meaning, we don't fight people. Please don't fight people. We don't fight people. We don't fight people. But against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Don't forget because we don't battle people, we don't battle at all. No. But we do battle. Okay? We do battle. We do not battle flesh and blood, but do fight or we do battle powers of darkness, all kinds of powers of darkness. And the more we are victorious and the more useful do we, we go from here to here to here to here. The more you have personal victory like Daniel, the more useful vessel you become in the hands of God, ultimately he's fighting principalities. He's not fighting local demons. He comes to the point where Michael has to come because the prince of Persia itself, that is the principality over the whole Persia. And Persia extended from India all the way down. Scripture says that's a huge nation. And the big one over Persia is the one he is fighting. Okay, so God says, we do not fight flesh and blood, but we do fight. Sometimes we 
only read half the words. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, so I am going to walk in peace. But God says you need to be violent too spiritually because the kingdom of God advances by violence and violent men and women seize it by force. So we do fight. But we do fight. That's what First Timothy 6.12 will say. We fight the good fight, the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. If it is by sight, we'll end up fighting flesh and blood. But if you're fighting powers of darkness, it is only possible by faith and not by sight. So never lose sight of these two things. Okay? Our personal fight and our personal usefulness in the kingdom of God. So in this fight, we have looked over and over and over again. Before you go into battle, we need to identify our enemy. Okay, if you do not know your enemy, how do you fight? So we have seen over and over again, we have two enemies outside, which is the devil and his forces and the world and the system, which is under the control of the devil. And we have one enemy inside, which is our flesh, the old man and Amalek. We've been looking at Amalek last Wednesday from Pastor Vijay and the previous Wednesday. He represents the enemy inside. We saw how we learn spiritual principles from the Old Testament. Amalek is the descendant of Esau, who for a pot of stew gave away his birthright. Meaning our flesh will give away or gamble with eternal things for the temporal. Our flesh. Samson was gambling. His flesh was gambling with eternal things for the temporal. Our flesh will gamble with eternal things for the temporal. And often people do not realize when we were growing up, when we are young, when we did not have this knowledge, God said, those seasons of ignorance I will forget. But now that we have this knowledge, God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. If you sow in the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow in the spirit, you will reap everlasting life. So do not gamble. That is the flesh. That is the flesh. Amalek or Esau will gamble with the flesh and give away the eternal. On the other side is, later when you realize you have lost it, Esau will be mad at the other guy for taking the spiritual. Okay, So guard that also. Maybe you gambled and lost it. Sit quietly. Don't get angry with the ones who are pursuing God and having their victory. Just pray for them and say, Lord, I thank you. At least I'm still in the house of God. This is consistent in the Bible. Cain's hatred for Abel. Ishmael's antipathy towards Isaac. Esau's hatred towards Jacob. The hatred of Joseph's brothers towards Joseph. Flesh will always strive against the spirit. Not just our flesh will spy, fight against our spirit, in which the Holy Spirit is. The flesh will also contend with those who are spiritually victorious. That is where we have to keep fighting that flesh, our flesh. That's where we saw the passages from Pastor Vijay last week. 
Okay, we'll just look at it. Once again, a few passages. In Exodus 17 and verse 16, scripture says, Because the Lord has sworn that Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Until all flesh is destroyed, God will continue. The Spirit of God will continue this war with the flesh from generation to generation. What's the reason? The reason is First Corinthians 1, 29. No flesh shall glory in his presence. God will not allow flesh to have glory because the flesh is animated by the devil while the spirit is animated by the spirit of God. So he will not allow any flesh to glory in his presence. So the Lord will fight Amalek which represents your and my flesh from generation to generation. We also saw two Sunday Wednesdays back the tactic of the Amalekites. Scripture says in Deuteronomy 25 verse 17 to 18, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when he were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, smote the inmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast. Can we have NKJV? This is KJV, right? Was faint and weary and he feared not God. How does Amalek attack? Amalek always attacks us in our weak areas. The devil knows everybody's weak areas. Everybody's weak areas. He knows where we have indulged in the flesh, where our flesh is very, very weak. And that's the area Amalek will come and attack. So when Israel came out of Egypt, this is how Amalek attacks. And that's what happens to us when we are tired, when we are weary, when our flesh is very weak. That is where we get attacked. Now look at the other portion. This we saw two weeks back. Now we look at the portion which Pastor Vijay was speaking from last Wednesday. First Samuel chapter 15, 7 to 9. Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agar, king of Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Then, verse 9, but, but. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now there is a difference here. Do you see the difference? The difference is this. Earlier it was Amalekites who were pursuing Israel and attacked those who were weak among them. Now it is the other way. Now it is Israel that is pursuing Amalekites and sparing the best of Amalek. It's not the same. The difference. Now it is Israel refusing to destroy anything that looked good in the Amalekite camp. That is the problem with our repentance. When we repent, we get rid of all the things which doesn't mean much to us. But the things which we like in our flesh, we'll keep it. Suddenly we hear a message on the holiness and let a simple example, let us be about, about clothing. We go over there and say, ah, this I will get rid of. This, this, because you don't like it anyway. This one, ah, no. Nah, that was too expensive. That's our problem. What do they do? Everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed, but they were unwilling to utterly destroy what? All that was good. Who said it was good? They said it was good, not God. Okay. We decide suddenly what is good and what is bad in the flesh. The good things, what we think about our flesh, we want to put it away. This is our major problem. 
the problem of Saul is the problem of every believer that we are not really able to come to the point where Paul reaches. In Romans 7 and verse 18 he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. We are not willing to reach that, no, in that old man of mine, there is absolutely nothing good. We will say this, we will repeat this, we will memorize this, we will quote it, but we will not believe it. There is nothing good in me. Absolutely nothing good in me. For I know that in me, he says in me, that is my flesh. There is nothing good. If there is nothing good, then it must be utterly destroyed. That is what actually the command that is given by God to Saul in 15 and verse 3, for Samuel 15, verse 3, he says, destroy everything. Now go attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Sounds terrible to us, but understand spiritual terms, it means mean leave nothing of the flesh. Destroy the flesh completely. Nothing. It may look like an infant. Small thing in our eyes, but it has the power to grow and make us stumble one day. When Lot followed Abraham into the promised land, he must have been a young little fellow. And said, Chhota ladka, problem kuch nahi hai. But later, he brought trouble for Abraham, his household. He brought trouble later for all of Israel by creating Moab and Ammon. But when he walked into promised land, walked behind Abraham, he must have looked like a cute little fellow. Cute little fellow. Okay, there are so, so many things in our life. We know it is of the flesh, but it looks very cute. Looks harmless to young people. It's your this thing, gaming. It looks so harmless. Looks so harmless now, but you go to Korea, you will see them high on drugs sitting to remain awake for 30 hours, 40 hours just to do gaming. Just to do gaming. Gaming, 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 gaming. But when you started, it looks so harmless. So many things look so harmless, so innocent, sometimes so cute. But God says, I know I am God who sees the end from the beginning. I know how these things can grow and one day destroy you or take your reward, your crown away. So when you comes to your flesh, your flesh, my flesh. He says, deal with it an iron hand every day. Don't let the flesh live. Daily deal with it. Amalek or the flesh in New Covenant terms is best described in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And verse 16. Yeah, I'm sorry, 16 also. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. And we didn't think that is in the world, but that is in me. But it say it is there in the world. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. So what is Amalek? Amalek is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
and he is saying this is of the world because the entire world system is framed on this. The whole world system is framed on this. That's why often we get upset. We get upset if any one of these things is touched. That's when we realize, oh my gosh, the world is in me. I'm so upset. Or this is the one that pulls me. God says the whole world is contaminated by this, the devil's system. Yet, then the question is, how can I live without things? Because scripture says, do not love the world or the things in the world. But I need things to live. And all the things I need to live, whether I need little or more, are in the world. Right? So we say, Pastor, but you said, we understand, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But practically, how does that happen? How do we have a, a realistic pursuit of Matthew 6.33? Has to lead to an experience. Has to lead to an experience. What is the experience? How do you know I have pursued the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do I know it in experience? First Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great thing. The first thing is that as if Pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness. What is the net effect in your soul? It's godliness. And what is the net effect experience in your soul? It is contentment. Suddenly you realize little or more doesn't make any difference. You are content. You are content. Not only does it give you a realistic experience, it also gives us a realistic value system. How to really value things. That is verse 7. What is that? For we brought nothing into the world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Very realistic appraisal. What is that? Whether I have less things or more things, I brought nothing, I take nothing. So what am I worried about? Real appraisal. This is a real appraisal. Six should lead to a real appraisal about things. It doesn't matter. I brought nothing, I take nothing. That's how Job understood. He's called an upright man, a blameless man, a man who feared God, a man who issued or avoided evil, and God put a hedge around him. He had so much things. One shot, everything was taken away. And he said, makes no difference. Why? God gave, God took. I brought nothing, I can take nothing. Real appraisal of how. And further down, we are not looking at it, further down, it will give us the spiritual insight about the pursuit of money. The pursuit of money for most people, or if not all people, is basically to feed the flesh. Even if it is the good of the flesh, like Saul. Okay? So, how do we handle things? How do we handle things? First Timothy 4.4 4. For every creature, everything of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. He says it doesn't matter. Can you really receive something with thanksgiving? The best thing to do is that before you unwrap the wrapper, if you open it and they thanks, then it's a response to what you saw. Before you open it, 
Thanks be to God. So next time try to say grace before the food comes from the kitchen. What does it say? If it is received with thanksgiving. Receive it with thanksgiving. Be very sure in your heart you are really receiving it with thanksgiving. Second thing scripture says, it is consecrated. I think it's the next verse. Four. Yeah, is it consecrated by word and prayer? Yeah. yeah. Verse 4, 5. Yeah. For it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Suddenly what happens, when you have spoken over it, it is sanctified. What is it? It has been set apart for a holy use. It has been sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. It's very simple. But that's not today's message, okay? But the word of God is practical. Because it tells us how to live with things in this world and overcome daily. Because we need to overcome more and more and more as he reveals, he reveals, the spirit reveals our own flesh. He's revealing to us our own flesh. So let's go back to the battle of the flesh that is Amalek. And listen to what God speaks to Saul through Samuel. God is speaking to Saul through Samuel. So God is speaking through Samuel and the Holy Spirit is speaking to every soul in us. The flesh in us. What does he say in 1 Samuel 15, 22? So Saul, Samuel said, Has God has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now we know it so well, because we have heard this over and over and over and over. But then we need to stop at even familiar verses. That's the beauty of God's scripture. Now you can go through all your life and if you're really interested, you will see it is so deep like God itself. So when you come and ask, see this question, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold to obey is better than sacrifice. And the question you need to ask is, how can obey be better than sacrifice? Because is an obedience itself an act of sacrifice? Is an obedience itself an act of sacrifice? So how can obedience be better than sacrifice? Because every ob- true obedience is an act of sacrifice. Okay, we need to go back. Always I said all the answers of, to life is found in Genesis. Okay, we're not going to Genesis, but an uh, uh, incident in Genesis. Because if you go to the beginning, we'll understand the struggle of every good Christian. I'm not bad Christians, good Christians, true, genuine Christians that they face most of their life. Unless this question is resolved. We will, I'm telling you, if this question is not resolved, we will not progress further in God's school of spiritual discipline. God has got a school. We don't realize we got admission there. It is called the school of spiritual discipline. We will not progress further unless we get an answer to this question. How is obedience better than sacrifice? Let's go to Hebrews 11.4, which talks about an incident in the beginning. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. We know the story. It was time for sacrifice. Both brought their sacrifices One was looked down or looked upon with favor, the other was not. We have discussed much on this, but today I want to look at 
the sacrifice in our lives that is rejected by God. Okay? To make this distinction very clear, that's the title of today's title is Self-Sacrifice or Sacrifice of the Self. They are not the same. Self-sacrifice or the sacrifice of the self. Note this. In Genesis 4, outside the garden, we are not turning there. This is the first act of worship and sacrifice. Subsequently, we will see the first act of murder also. So the question is, why should sacrifice lead to murder? That is where we have to ask, what do I follow? Do I follow self-sacrifice? Or do I follow the sacrifice of self? Let me explain to you clearly what these two things, how they are different. Self-sacrifice is when we give up things. We give up the things we want to give up. The way we want to give up. When we want to give up. And in the entire process, we are in control. Because at the end, it is the glory of the self or flesh. While sacrifice of self is we when we put our entire being on the altar of God. We allow him to show what he wants us to sacrifice. The way he wants to sacrifice and when he wants us to do it. He is in control in the entire process and he alone receives the glory. In both there is sacrifice. In the first one we are in control. In the second one He is in control. There's a lot of sacrifice in the kingdom of God. Among God's people. Lot of sacrifice. But much of the sacrifice which we have lived even in our lives is self-sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice of self. That's why when we read verses like 2 Corinthians 12.10 Paul saying, 1210. Therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure. And I will use the word delight. I take pleasure or I delight in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in, I mean, we actually practically, if we go through it, we will say, uh, um, I endure infirmities. I endure infirmities and in reproaches, in needs. I end, I grit my teeth and I just endure it. That's not what he says. He says, I delight. I delight in infirmities. I delight in reproaches. I delight in needs. I delight in persecution. I delight in destruction. Why do you, should you delight, oh Paul? Why can't you just endure? Give us something simpler. Say, endure. He says, no, I delight. Why? Because when I delight, I know it is the sacrifice of self. When I endure, I know it is self-sacrifice. Because in the world, people go endure all this for benefit of the flesh. If you are in here, I will give you. If you are in an office and you are desperate, you are the only breadwinner and your money runs your life, your whole family and your boss is a nasty man or a woman and he constantly takes, makes fun of your infirmity, off and insults you, you will endure it all because you know you have to survive. 
You have to survive. You'll endure it all. Why? Because you know at the end of the day I have to take care of my flesh. You want to do a lot of things back to him but you endure. Because you know I need my money at the end of the day. Young people will go through incredible sacrifice of waking up in the morning, studying, burning the midnight oil. They endure it all. Their friends mock, why are you sitting like this and studying? Because you know at the end there is a goal. I am going to clear this. I am to going to be an engineer. I am going to be a doctor. I am going to crack, sir. And then I will have glory. They endure. But he says, this is different. I delight. I delight. Why? Because it's a sacrifice of self, not self-sacrifice. I delight. I delight in this because I realize when I delight, it is for Christ's sake he receives the glory. There's no glory for me in this, in the flesh. He receives the glory. That's how we distinguish the sacrifice that takes place within the kingdom of God. Because this is that separates the men and women of God. Self-sacrifice or the sacrifice of self. That is how you and I really know whether we are the friend of the cross, as Paul will say in Philippians 3.18, or I am an enemy of the cross. Nobody can be neutral to the cross. He doesn't say they are enemies of the cross. So if there are enemies of the cross, there must be also friends of the cross. Right? How do I know whether I am an enemy of the cross or am I a friend of the cross is by seeing whether I delight what the cross brings. We're getting the picture. Remember to follow Jesus for you and me and all, everybody. Jesus set a primary condition. Two conditions actually in Matthew 16, 24 and Luke also will say that. He said to his disciples, if anyone, anyone decides to come after me, not what I can give after me. Let him deny himself. He has to deny himself. That is what? He has to deny his flesh. He has to come to that point where he looks and says, absolutely nothing good in me. Two, he has to take up his cross and follow me. He has to take up his cross and follow me. Why should I take up the cross, O Lord? I will deny myself and I will follow you. But why should I take up my cross daily and follow you? He says there is a reason. Because in Galatians 6.14, he will understand the secret. Paul will understand the secret. He says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Why? The cross, my flesh is there. And I realize the flesh is nothing good in me, but that doesn't mean my flesh is dead. Out there, there is this world. And this world has an incredible power over my flesh. And through the cross, the world is dead to my flesh. We say, how do I die to the flesh? It's simply that you make the world of no effect to your flesh through the cross. The world has no power. If there is no world, that's why in the Garden of Eden, they couldn't sin. Why? Because there was no world. There was no world. So as soon as they sinned, he had to kick them out. Otherwise they would bring the world into the garden. 
And outside is all sin, the world system operated by the enemy. So lying and anger and murder, everything begins outside. See, the problem is, when we read the Bible, we read it like, uh, we read storybooks and novels when we were young. You know, when we read storybooks and the story was so gripping, so gripping, and finally we couldn't, we go back to the end. <laughs> He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He didn't die. They lived happily ever after. That's how we read. And the problem is, we unconsciously, we have interpreted Bible the same way. We read the Bible the same way. Like we read Daniel 1.8. Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with anything from the king's table. Okay? And after that, what do we read? Daniel 1.17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then we read verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in this realm. And then as we continue reading, we see, wow, Daniel is going up higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So you know what? Our denying is motivated by this, but this doesn't happen for most people. Daniel had no clue what his end was going to be when he took his first decision. We are motivated by these things to make the decisions Daniel made. But not him. Not him. That's our problem. So even when we are reading scripture, we are not motivated by the sacrifice of self. We are motivated by self-sacrifice. That is why the new gospel, it has to be sold, it has to be sold. This is the will of God, this is the will of God, this is the will of God for you to prosper, prosper, prosper. Because even if people have to give, it has to be told to them, he will give you more so you won't lose. You think Daniel started like that? No. He had no clue where he was going to end. No. When we read portions like Genesis 38 and verse 28, and 28, 37, 28, not 38, but 37, 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Right? We read this. Then we read about Joseph in Potiphar's palace. Then we read about Joseph in the prison. But ultimately, where do we end up with? We end up with 41, verses 41 and 42. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his. So you will see, we look at all of Joseph's decisions, but we are motivated by this. Because we have read the end of the story. But for countless millions of people like Joseph who took this stand, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So we are not motivated by the sacrifice of self. We are motivated by self-sacrifice. Poor Joseph was not motivated by any of these things. Scripture doesn't say that he interpreted a dream until he was in prison. He only says he dreamt. 
His first interpretation of a dream happened when he was in the dungeon when the butler and the steward told them about his dreams and he interpreted it. When he dreamt the first two times, he only went and told the dreams. It does not say he interpreted it. We did. He didn't. We interpreted for him and for ourselves. We want to be Joseph's end without the beginning or the middle. That's why often our sacrifices are motivated by self. It is self-sacrifice. It is not sacrifice of the self. That's why I personally call the demarcation line of faith is found in Hebrews 11 verse 35 onwards. There's a line, demarcation. Faith has two sides. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Till then it is victory, 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 all victory. Even Abel, though he's dead, he still speaks. It's all talking about, boom. Then 35, there is a line drawn. Women received the dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance. Not accepting deliverance. Now we talk about deliverance from our prison. Our situations, all our problems. Others did not accept deliverance because they knew it would come at the cost of self-sacrifice and not sacrifice of self. They said, no, we will not do it because it glorifies the flesh and not Christ. All it took for the millions who were killed by the Roman emperors was take one pinch of incense and publicly burn it by saying Caesar is Lord. They said, we will not do it. Christ is Lord. They said, you will be crucified. It's fine. One pinch of incense. That's all it took. Take a pinch of incense, put it before the idol, say, Caesar is Lord. Even today, tens and thousands lying in prison is simply for the reason they refuse to deny that Jesus is Lord. One little thing. They drew a line. They refused. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were offered a present resurrection. Just say, recant, you're free. You are resurrected from this life in this dungeon, this life in this prison, life in this line. You can go out free. They said, no. We are looking forward to a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. world was not worthy. Because the world could not receive glory like that. No. They wandered in the deserts, mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all this having obtained a good testimony through faith. So their testimony also was by faith. It did not come from self-sacrifice. It came from the sacrifice of self. Did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Do we see that? Self-sacrifice versus sacrifice of self. This is the major issue with ministry within the kingdom of God. So we are all ministers one way or other. We will minister when we receive something back. We are willing to sacrifice if there is profit for us. If there is no profit, we will not sacrifice. Or we put limitations on our sacrifice. We'll put limitations on our sacrifice. Then suddenly we start counting the cost. Oh, it's so, it's so tiring. It's so, but if it is our own, 
It satisfies our flesh, pleases our flesh. No cost is too much. No cost is too much because self-sacrifice and sacrifice of self. Much of the church is stuck on one side. What is that? Verse 35. That side. 1 to 35. But God says, that is just, there is much sacrifice there. But it is not necessarily sacrifice of self. Great victories. What shall I say about Gideon? The writer will say, what can you say about Gideon? You began well, and then after that he started getting mad with people who opposed him. Okay, you shall be whipped with thorns, and you, this is what I will do to you. Finally, it is Gideon. Where did he begin? How did he begin? How did he end up there? No, have to see. What shall we say about these things? See, it's like the old story of the chicken and the pig. They were walking in the farm and they loved their master, the farmer. And they said, you know what? He's such a kind man. He takes such good care of us. What about giving him a surprise tomorrow morning and giving him breakfast? The hen said, let's see. My suggestion is, let's give him a typical English breakfast. What is that? Eggs and ham. To which the pig replied, you only have to make a contribution for breakfast. I have to give my life. John 3.16 is not talking about a contribution. John 3.16 is talking about the sacrifice of self. For God so loved the world, he did not make a contribution. He gave his only begotten son. Very strange illustration to use in terms of moral values, but the hell church is full of chickens. They do make good contributions. But leaving moral connotation aside, in connection with this story, God needs quite a few pigs who will provide ham and bacon. There can be only one true response to John 3.16. That's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He says, my entire life has not been a contribution. It's been an offering. I poured my life unto the Lord. To the point, now my departure is at hand. What he's saying is that my offering shall not be defined as a contribution. It's a pouring out of my life to you, Lord. And in this last hour, The church has to rise to this occasion. Plenty of contributors. There is only self-sacrifice over there. In this last hour, like in the book of Acts, in the first hour, God needs people who will not be just contributors, who will understand what is the sacrifice of self. You see, the people who followed Moses out of Egypt, those who followed Moses out of Egypt, they had self-sacrifice. They had self-sacrifice. That's why they left. Most of them offered their skills, service, and wealth. All three. Most of them. Especially when the time to build the temple came. Skills, service, and wealth. Till Moses said, enough. No more. They offered their skills. They offered their service. They offered their wealth to the Lord. While Moses offered his whole soul. 
when god wants a whole man or woman he is willing to wait at 40 moses offered his skills and his service that's what acts 722 means moses was learned in all the wisdom of the egyptians was mighty in words and deeds what was he offering my skills and my service my contribution for the kingdom of god let's have most people it's it is good to begin that way but it shouldn't end up that way most people who offer themselves in the church come like moses offering their skills and their services which is fine but at 80 is an absolutely different man who goes into egypt it's not a man who is offering his skills or his services Let me tell you at 40 Moses knew all about leadership because he was raised in the finest academy for princes and for leaders the best academy in the world that's what it means mighty in words deed and all the wisdom of the Egyptians he knew what excellence was because he lived in an environment where excellent you need to be really excellent to be at the top he knew what organization was because he led the armies of the pharaoh himself secular history says he won the wars against ethiopia and all for the pharaoh he knew what organization was but god was not looking for academic excellence secular leadership or organization skills because that's what churches are always saying bring it to the table because i'm not looking for any of that he had to come to the end of himself before he could truly become a man of god and when he became a man of god a man who put himself as sacrifice he was not given an army he was not given a chariot he was just given a stick just a stick which was surrendered first stick which he had surrendered to god then god said with this rod i'll bring my people out suddenly one night god says tells moses tonight you will take my people out how many around 2 million tonight what crazy leadership is this no planning no preparation one night take 2 million people out self sacrifice is not enough for that kind of leadership sacrifice of self alone will do god says you move them out tonight i move them out tonight how are you going to take care of them i don't know lord but you said i'm going to obey you but lord if i fail what will people say about me that is people who talk about self sacrifice if i fail what will people say about me if these people turn against me what will i do no questions asked because i have already offered myself on the altar to you lead them to the red sea where are you sure this is the wise man of egypt we are following or is this is fool from the wilderness people must have asked is this the wise man from egypt or the fool from the wilderness he's taken us that's why every accusation of the people is against moses because they did not understand the leadership of a man who has sacrificed himself to god they cannot understand what kind of a crazy guy is this what kind of a crazy man will leave his congregation and go and sit 40 days with god where is this fellow gone Thank <laughs> you. 
Where is this fellow gone? He won't pick any calls. You can't get in touch with him. And he brought us here and just left us here and gone. What kind of fellow is this? Only a fellow who has sacrificed himself. If it is self-sacrifice, he will keep one call open to the people. Okay, Lord, I'm there for them. They're also, okay, don't worry, I'm here, I'm here. Because don't think bad about me. Don't think I have abandoned you. Okay, I'm here. I got your best intentions in my mind. Don't worry. Nothing, he went. Moses was so involved in the sacrifice of self in the will of God that he actually looked like a fool to the people. Actually looked like what? Now who wants to look like a fool if you are a leader? That's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools. Today nobody wants to be a fool for Christ's sake. They want to be wise men. They want titles. Even in this church, other churches, you see, nowhere in my life I have seen a pamphlet about a ministry written full for Christ. It is written apostle, prophet, mighty man of signs and wonders. Even there in the service of God, our flesh struggles for recognition. There is sacrifice, but it is self-sacrifice. Fool. Fool for Christ. This is our problem. We will read a portion like 3 John 1-2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And you know what? We will make a theology out of it. I have heard so many pastors whose entire churches are built on this. One verse. That you may prosper, and you may prosper in health and in wealth, prosper health and wealth. They have gathered crowds. Who said it? Who said it? John said it. The same man who said this, also said this. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom, and of patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. Arrested, abandoned, left. Going through suffering in my old age. Abandoned, left, and I was in the spirit, worshipping the Lord. What did he write? How did we make a theology of one words of one man and not balance it of another words of that man when he's talking about his experience? He says, not only I am your brother and I'm your companion, meaning I know all of you are going through tribulation. The same man who said, I wish you prosper and in health and everything, he says, I also know the other reality. When you have offered yourself in sacrifice, I know what you will go through. And I know church, you're going through. I just want to write to you, you are not alone. I am there with you going through the same thing. Think about Joseph. And then read Psalm 105, verse 17 and 18. Psalm 105, 17. He sent a man. Joseph. Right? He sent a man before them. This is God. Who was sold as a slave. The hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Most of the pastors I have talked to over the life. Have never seen these words connected with Joseph. They only read Genesis. See when you read Genesis. Because you look at the end from the beginning. Even when you think he was sold to the Ishmaelites. And taken to Pharaoh. They will think he was taken on a camel. And he was sort of carried and pampered. You don't see this. 
How was he taken? In chains. How was he kept in the prison? In chains. Laid in irons. It's a very medieval term. Laid in irons. Now what it means? This is how you walk. Laid in irons. Laid in irons. Another version will say, until the iron entered his soul. Laid in irons. We don't want this. We want a fairy tale. This is the fairy tale of Joseph. Joseph grew up in his... I wrote it myself, okay? So you can uh, give me credit. Joseph grew up in his father's house. And he dreamt dreams. And he interpreted them well. Over a period of time, his fame spread far and near as a prophet and as an interpreter of dreams. Then one day in faraway Egypt, the pharaoh had a dream. No one could interpret it. And one of the counselors said, Your majesty, in the land of Canaan, there dwells a young Hebrew lad. His fame has reached every land. He's endowed with great wisdom and he can interpret dreams. So the pharaoh sent an entourage. They came with chariots and much gifts. And they took Joseph in the chariot to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh explained his dream to Joseph and Joseph interpreted it. And Pharaoh said, there is none like you in this whole world. Come, take your position. This is not the story of Joseph. This is the story of Balaam. The problem is we, in our hearts, we desire the end of Joseph. But in our lives, we want to be like Balaam. We want glory for our flesh. And we are willing to sacrifice any extent for it. This is not the sacrifice of self. Sadly, it is self-sacrifice. Like I said, there is great sacrifice in the world. Because there is much profit in the flesh. Where there is much profit in the world, there is much sacrifice. Pastor Vijay will always talk about Nadal or Ferrer or any one of those greats in any field. Football, music, anywhere. Any art, sports, fine arts, anything. There's great sacrifice. Great sacrifice. Because there is great profit and profit in the flesh. In the kingdom of God, we talk about Paul, we preach about Paul. We, you know, in Paul's time, he had none of this adulation or glory or honor. He was hounded from city to city and most of the Christians' leaders themselves were against him. That's why he always had to even write to say, you know, I know you don't accept me as an apostle, but let me tell you I am an apostle. How many years later, after he is dead, is that his letters have become scripture? Nobody accepted him when he was living. We talk about it and says, wow, Lord, if I ever want to finish, I want to finish like Paul. He says, you want to live like him? Want to live like him? In one place in the book of Corinthians, he talks about, he uses an illustration from the Roman Empire. He says, when every general won, and when he brings back, he brings this train. He brings this trade of these people whom he have conquered. It's made a mockery of the kings and they're brought and dragged in chains. And he will say, he says, no, he says, we apostles, hmm? yeah, 
For I think God has displayed us the apostles last. All the wealth and the loot and everything. Let us say Titus is entering into Rome. He has conquered Jerusalem. He's coming. And first comes all the wealth, the gold and everything, everything, the slaves, everybody. And the last dragged will come the king and the princes of Jerusalem. They were killed, but if they were caught, they are dragged in. And he says, you know what? We the apostles God has displayed last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to the men. Both to the angels and to the men. That's why I ask pastors when I teach them, you want the title of apostle today? You want the title? Everybody is so title. I said, do you know what it means in the kingdom? You want to be the last in a spectacle to the world? Dragged before men and before angels. See, we believe in fairy tales. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It's a real, real book. That's why Jesus says, don't be fooled by the self. That's why scripture says the heart is more deceitful than anything else above all things. That's why Jesus says to follow him We'll have to do a few things. What is one? Deny ourself. Second, pick up our cross daily. And third, follow him. Pick up the cross. What does it mean? I will not let the glory of the world define my actions. So we have to go beyond the place of self-sacrifice this year. Where we give him that place of the sacrifice of self, where we have nothing to say in that matter. That's what God says in Exodus 20 and verse 25. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. What is altar? Altar is the place where you offer your sacrifice, yourself. What is God saying? Don't shape your own altar. Don't shape your own altar. Our problem is we want to sacrifice, but we let our flesh, our self, fashion the altar. God is not in control. Sad thing is, these are real truths. That's why if you read, you will see many are called Few are chosen. Even among the few who are chosen, even more lesser number will finish faithful. Because the self is our biggest enemy. Not the devil. Not the devil. Not the world. It is not the world. It is not the devil. Because if the self is handled, there is nothing the devil can do or nothing the world can do. The self has to be handled. But there is self-sacrifice. And the sacrifice of self. And you know what the church gets fooled into? It gets fooled into self-sacrifice. Gets into? Because look at it. When you get offended because of something, what is your immediate reaction? You have no idea. I pray. When people talk to me or to my wife about all the problems in their life, and the immediate answer is, we go to church and we pray. Meaning, we make such a lot of sacrifice. We give. We pray. We go to church. 
we give. What is that? Self-sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 10 and 12. Paul says, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also we may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Life in you. He's talking about two, two sets of people within the kingdom of God. He says there is one set, is this. And because there have been men and women like this for the past 2000 years who are willing to live, he says, where's this? We received life. Death in them, life in us. Death in them, life in us. But on that day, when God judges, life in them, death in us. We lose, they gain. We lose. Again, that's why scripture says many will enter into the kingdom just coming through the flames. So what will have me do today is what Paul asked on this first day. What will we have me do? And what did he say? It will be told you. It will be told you. He begins his life that way, ends up his life that way. As we come to the end, last five minutes, be careful about self-sacrifice and the sacrifice of self. They may look the same, but they are not the same. Eli, the priest Eli, their sons learned it the hard way. No, Rama, Hophni and Phineas? Okay. Because it takes great sacrifice to transport the ark of the Lord to the battlefield. Takes a lot of sacrifice. They wanted victory. And they know victory is connected with the presence of God. And the presence of connected in Israel with the tabernacle, with the ark. So they, with great sacrifice, they transported the ark to the battlefield. And then they realize the rubber hits the ground. Self-sacrifice is not enough. You are one set of people who have never sacrificed yourself to the Lord, so they both die, and Israel loses. The Philistines take the ark. The Philistines also, it takes great sacrifice to take the ark of a foreign nation, the God of the foreign nation, and put it along with your gods. It takes great sacrifice. We won't do that. They did it. So they will say we have more. They will say we are more, they are more tolerant than us, which is true. We are not tolerant. Because truth is not tolerant. Truth is always one. It's never tolerant. They were very tolerant. They did sacrifice. They took the ark of the Lord and put it. And immediately there is havoc all over in the Philistine land. David also learned it the hard way. When he tried to transport the ark the first time, he will realize, you need to move the presence of God from point A to point B. Self-sacrifice is not enough. I need a sacrifice of self. So the first time he tried to move, instead of joy, there was death. But in this, all this thing, there is an interesting episode which will show us the best part of it all. That is when the Philistines wanted to send the ark back now. Now they don't want the ark anymore. They don't want God anymore in their presence. 
Many Christians are Philistines. You need to understand. That's why they are going to church. Because they know the more I go to church, the more trouble I face in life. I'm not kidding. It's the truth. The more I go to church, if I don't change, the more trouble I face. Because God says, you come into my house, I will judge you. Because judgment begins in the house of God. It doesn't begin in the world. God never judges the world. He's waiting for another day when they are judged to condemnation. He says, my children, I will judge you every day. Because you are my children. The Philistines, what will they do? They will say, send this ark, send this ark away. And they do it interestingly. And I want to look at that one portion, 10 to 14 actually, okay? The men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their cows at home. What did they do? Two milk cows, meaning they had just given birth. They have their little calves and they shut the calves in their home. They set the ark of God on the cart and the chest with gold rats and images of their tumors, that is peace offering. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Bethshemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went far, went after them to the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Interesting, right? See, what you need to understand is in the Bible often God has spoken very powerfully through animals when he could not speak through human beings. You know when he told Elijah, you stay in that place called chariot, who shall feed you? Ravens. What is English? What is the other word we get from raven connected with hunger? Ravenous. Meaning ravens are special for having a huge hunger and able to eat anything. But God says, when I touch them, they will go against all the natural inclination of their flesh and they will serve me. They will take bread, they will not eat it at all and they will drop it at your lap and go back. They know their flesh says, eat it. But they also know that I have commanded them, take it and give it. That's ravenous. Okay? God teaches us through through animals. Now if you go towards the beginning, what did they do? They took cows who had calved. And they had shut the calves in the house. And then they took these cows and tied them to the cart. What do you see? They are, yeah, verse 12. Yeah, you will see they are lowing as they went. Why are they lowing? Lowing is a term meaning they were crying. Why are they crying? They are crying because their calves are at home. All their natural affections have been shut up over there. They are crying over it, but the direction will not change. The direction will not change. The direction is towards where God is sending them. That's exactly what God said. If any man loves his father or mother, wife or children more than me, you cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean you don't go through the agony. You are lowing as you go, but your direction is not changing. You will not turn to the right 
or to the left. All the pleasures and the temptations of the world is being offered, but you know where you are going and where you have been sent. Because this is not self-sacrifice, this is the sacrifice of self. And how does it end? Where do they end? You think these are coincidences? They will end to the field of Joshua. Of Bethshemesh. Wasn't there so many other people? Why did it come to the field of Joshua? Because Yeshua comes to his field. And what happens? There, first to to die for the presence of God to come back to Israel are those two cows. They are burnt. Offered as a burnt offering. Did they know this is going to be their end? No. They didn't know. Did they look to the left or to the right? No. Did they cry as they went? Yes. Did they change their direction? No. That's what God is talking about. The kingdom of God is built by people like this. They die, we receive life. Generation to generation to generation, they carried the death of Christ Jesus in their bodies so that the life of Christ could come through them into our lives. And what opposes? It's our flesh. Amalek opposes. There is great sacrifice in the kingdom of God. But once again, let me explain to you as we close. Self-sacrifice is when we give up things we want to give up. The way we want to give up. When we want to give up. We are in control. In the entire process, at the end, the glory is to the self. We might even pat ourselves and say, I'm smart. I'm very rational. I'm smart. I make good decisions. While the sacrifice of self is when we put our entire being on the altar of God. We allow him to show what he wants us to sacrifice, the way he wants us to sacrifice, and when he wants us to sacrifice in the entire process, he is in control and therefore he receives glory. There is only one way it is possible, as Moses showed us and Paul showed us, in the process, in the eyes of the people, you may end up like a fool during the entire process. Later people may call and say you are a wise man, but not through the process. That's why God's, Paul says, we are fools for Christ Jesus. Fools for Christ Jesus. So this evening, when as we have looked three Wednesdays on Amalek or our flesh, don't ever underestimate the power of flesh. In life, in believing homes, even in ministry, never underestimate the power of flesh. Flesh is very strong and there can be incredible sacrifice, but sacrifice may be self-sacrifice and not the sacrifice of self. In 2017, he has promised rivers of living water shall flow. Rivers of living water shall flow. I want you to go back home and listen to Sunday's message by Pastor Carter Collin. One of the toughest messages he has preached and while he preached, people walked away from the church. They walked out. Tough, tough message. And he said the same thing. He promised reverse of living water shall flow. Tough message. Flesh will not receive those things. Flesh will walk away. 
Because you cannot receive messages like that. But that is the kingdom of God where no flesh will glory. No flesh will glory. Because even in ministry, flesh wants glory. And it becomes the ministry of self. God may save people through because his word will not go void. The word will always achieve purpose. But the person himself will ultimately be judged. So in whatever we do, see that God receives the glory. The flesh receives no glory at all. That it is not self-sacrifice. It is actually the sacrifice of self. Sacrifice of self. So ask yourself always when you are upset, the question God, first question God asks outside the garden. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do right, will I not accept you? So the problem is, the flesh does not want the acceptance of God. It wants the acceptance of man. That's why our countenance falls. That is why when Jesus tells us to do things in secret, we find it so difficult to do. He says, when you want to pray, what glory is there in prayer? Now honestly, let me tell you, if I were to announce next Sunday, this is the glorious prayer team of the church. These five have been called specifically for prayer and everybody should call them for prayer. Everybody will be there for prayer. Why? Because there is glory. Because you have been assigned positions and titles. Prayer warrior number one, prayer warrior number two, great prayer warrior number three. Title has come. But if you are told to pray and nobody knows you are gathering for prayer, there is no glory in that. Right? It's an issue, even in giving. All churches, this table given by this one, this chair given by this block given by... It has to be there, otherwise they won't give. Everywhere, the flesh is struggling for recognition. I went through this for years and years when I was young and a believer. Every big meeting when I sat there listening, I was feeling, today God will tell that man, there is a young man sitting in the congregation, he's called of God, call him to preach, never happened. Never happened. Never happened. You know, your flesh is like, no, oh boy, I am sitting in this crowd. Does that man know that this is a preacher? (laughs) Never happened. Finally, the day when I was called to preach, I was shocked. What did you say? Next Sunday I am to preach and you are not in town also? He said, yeah, you preach next Sunday. I said, oh Lord, where did this come from? We have all these issues with the flesh. We struggle with it. We fight with it every day. Now, don't ever think that we heard this message. We received this message. Prayer is over. When you go, your flesh will die. No, it will not. You have to kill it. Tomorrow morning, it will be well and alive again. You have to kill it again. Amen? Shall we pray? Father, this evening, we just thank you. We just praise you. We just worship you, Lord. I just come into the church into thy hands, O Lord. We are your people, called by your name. Declare, call out of darkness into light to declare your glory, your praises. Not our praises. Your praises. Your glory. Your wonder. Your goodness. Your greatness. It's all about you. Because there is absolutely nothing good in us, in our flesh. 
And if there is something good from our lives, then it is of you and from you. And therefore, God, you and you alone receive the glory. Deserve the glory. Help us, O Lord, each day to live our lives. Consciously putting to death the works of the flesh. This craving for glory, for recognition. And allow you to be glorified in our lives. He brought your people safely into your house. And I pray you will reach them home also safely, Lord. We just surrender ourselves into their hands. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We give you all glory, honor, power and praise. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.